Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I feel like I want to say this every week as we start Take Two. What are we going to talk about? We're so bored, but thanks for being with us for another week. We have Mara Carabello and Frugal Dougal, John Dougal. I added an extra Dougal when I said that. I get confused when I there say the Frugal There you go. That part. wasn't very frugal, Our was it? Daughter. No, I, I gave you an extra Frugal. <laughs> That's going to be the start of your rap. There you go. I'm imagining you as a rapper. It's not working in my brain. <laughs> so thank you for being here. I know it's been a long Those rappers weeks. have a lot of expensive jewelry I can't afford. You can't mm. afford that. I know. No. The fake stuff looks good sometimes. But uh, we have a little something going on right now, which I guess is somewhat political, the coronavirus. I don't usually think of viruses as political. But right now, the government... Um, it's having a huge political impact. It is. And the other day, I think it was yesterday, I wrote something on Facebook about how this was an unprecedented time. And people are like, this is not an unprecedented time. The media is, you know, blowing this out of proportion. So... I don't know. We've so it's business as usual. It's business as usual. We're <laughs> right. just screwing things over. <laughs> that was a normal Thursday yesterday. I know. And so it's a little exhausting because it is a tough call of, you know, how much do you report, how much do you don't. And we're at the point now where you have to talk about it almost every minute because the president, uh, just before we came on today, um, declared a national state of emergency, which frees up funds and allows the government a little more, I guess, breadth of what they can do to help with the virus. People's biggest concerns is, how much testing we could do. And I know that it's been slow here in Utah and other states. Everyone comparing us to South Korea right now, they're the gold standard apparently, which is a strange thing to talk about. But um, Lieutenant, Lieutenant Governor has been handling uh, the coronavirus COVID-19 task force. Throwing it out there. Are we doing a good job? Are we doing the right thing here? I feel like we're being proactive in Utah. Anyone have a first blush at this? No, I mean, I, I'm going to say I think we're we're unduly prepared in Utah probably because our culture of preparedness. I do think our elected officials are focused and earnest, and I do think that that's what we have to expect from each other. One of the things that I worry about in uh, unprecedented or, or uh, intense situations like this is how quickly we move to wanting to blame or explain or people to take, you know, like, why is that happening? I think we're all a little frustrated with not having a system in place, but it also makes sense there's no system in place, right? I mean, we, we didn't expect uh, this exactly. So one of the things that I keep... It wouldn't be an emergency if it happened every day. That's right, and I keep asking myself, I mean, I think what the test of us is, are we keeping our perspective? And so as I look at my consumption of news, one of the big things is, am I consuming from legit outlets? And then after I've reached a point, which didn't happen yesterday, yesterday and this morning felt like every 10 minutes there was something new. But I tend to, in crisis situations like this, I tend to also get to the point where if I'm reading the same thing over and over, it's time for me maybe to check out 
a little, yeah, take OD, a walk. Yes. Yeah, maybe go breathe. And the, the other thing about this crisis that I don't think we're talking about yet, we've been so focused on what these big systems are doing. And right, they you're gathering thousands of people. I think the heads of institutions are operating both in the public interest and frankly, out of a little bit of public policy fear, uh, peer pressure, where you're like, I don't want to be the schmuck that kept open and, and started the problem. And then I have to separate myself and say, what's my obligation to this, right? Because there's a little bit of difference. And I think where I've landed, at least for the moment, is I need to make sure that I am keeping our part of the economy growing. I, I have a small shop that I work in. We can still come to work. Take all the precautions we all keep talking about. We've all really learned a lot about yeah. hand washing and six feet and, and covering our mouths, continuing that. But I think the crisis that's going to run in tandem and is is the economic crisis. So I do think it's important that we're still keeping our economy going in the ways that we can individually do that. I know, and that's going to be the tough part. I'm doing my part at Costco, and I think so many other people are. So (laughs) just really doing our best. So thanks for taking care of it for me because I haven't gone there, and I'm not going there. So, but uh, (laughs) to, to your comment and question, what I keep hearing too often from folks is. They want to hear from the docs. They want to hear from the medical folks, not the politicians. Mm -hmm. And one of the complaints I heard yesterday about the press conference was, okay, you called a press conference. You didn't tell us what was going to be discussed. You wanted us to all show up at the press conference to actually hear. So we're all in a room where we probably shouldn't be there with a whole bunch of school kids that were also there at the same time. So it's it's one of the questions, is it a PR stunt or is it really helping educate the public? And I hear from most folks, let us hear from the docs. Let us have them under explain what the issues are, what we should do, and why it matters. Okay, there's some of this, you know, self-sequestering, quarantine, and this and that. I hear a lot of folks, they still don't fully understand the dynamics and what that really means to slow it. They kind of understand it's supposed to slow, but why does that matter? And they don't understand how that can have a ripple effect if too many people get sick too quickly. Uh, our hospitals and, and healthcare facilities don't have the resources to adequately treat everybody, and that's why it's important to slow the progression of this and so forth. And we can all work really hard on washing our hands, the basics of just really things we can all do. Honestly, I've been so excited to see people washing their hands in public restrooms because sometimes adults don't do that. I don't get it, but I'm like, yes. So it's not just the men's room. Yes. I'm like, let's wash our hands. Let's try to sleep at night. You know, there's things that we can do to take care of ourselves. So hopefully we'll continue that. Well, and to Mara's point, I mean, she Mm -hmm. talks about the economy. I mean, we're going into a recession. My wife has a small business. She sells uh, wholesale to other, you know, clothing folks around the nation. And she's seeing ripple effects to those small businesses as rodeos and other events are canceled. They've stocked up on inventory. Their cash is tied up. Now they can't sell because those events canceled and it has this ripple effect. And she's already seen that impact just in the uh, businesses she deals with. And I think that's the part that I think everyone's most scared about maybe right now. We all know that you can get sick and most of us are going to be well with the numbers we're looking at. But the economy, I mean, it's our livelihood. It's your paycheck. Some people aren't working and we're all looking at our 401ks thinking, okay, how many more weeks till we can like take a deep breath and move on? Well, and we're also thinking about different dynamics like restaurants. I mean, I was at a restaurant a couple of days ago. I watched the waiter pick up my glass and pick up the glass of the person I was having lunch with and then walk across and pick up every else's glass and... In essence, I had virtually shaken everybody's hand by the time he came back to refill my glass again. 
But we still, I mean, I'm, I'm still going to say perspective, those, right? Yeah. I mean, you could do that. You could have done that two weeks ago when you have those public mm-hmm. moments where you think, oh, my gosh, you know, these places are dirty. And, and, and so, yes, it's a virus, but I think you have to keep balancing. And the key is to, to take precautions, read the data. I think uh, we're, we're all a little wanting more specific data about this virus that I hope is coming. But in the meantime, I'm, I'm going to land down on the side of live your life. Um, again, be reasonable, be sensible. But I think the ripple effect of us making too many changes uh, to our healthy lives and to getting out and, and shutting ourselves off, I think it's going to compound it. So again, I'm, I'm, I'm not yeah. saying take caution, but I am saying for me, I have Don't landed on the Charles Barkley side where I get most of my direction. Charles Barkley said the other day that we should just keep living our lives. And so I think I'm, uh-huh. so I'm following that. Well, that'll be Yolo. interesting to see. Yeah. <laughs> It's true, and I think attitude helps a whole heck of a lot. My parents are both 69, and they both teach school, and they're like, we're going to school. What are we going to do all day long? We'll go stir-crazy and not feel good at home. Although I think that maybe in a news conference that's coming after we record this, they may announce the closure of all schools statewide. Uh, The State Board of Education, I think at 3.30 this afternoon, has a news conference. And I'm guessing they'll probably go in the direction of Mara's daughter that is already out of school. A couple of districts in the Catholic schools have canceled. So uh, one thing that before we go on to the legislative session, I wanted to talk about how COVID-19 or coronavirus is going to switch things up maybe with our primaries that still remain in other states. But here in Utah, we're looking at the caucus system and conventions, which may get pushed to the side or maybe online. Uh, John, let's start with you on this one. Does this change or hurt anyone like our former podcast mate Greg Hughes or um, Wright and Bishop or Amy Winder Newton or now we know uh, Jeff Burningham who are all going to go there and try to sell themselves um, in convention and get on the ballot? Is it going to be harder to do if they're not doing this in person and they're doing this online? Uh, I think it significantly changes the whole complexity and dynamics of that. I mean, the first thing is from the Republican side, the caucus meetings have been postponed. What that really means is they've been canceled before convention happens. So we're going to use the delegates from two years ago and not new delegates we would normally pick on March 24th. Um, Jeff Burningham today was announcing that he was suspending signature gathering. So he'd been running down that path to get signatures to get on the primary. He told me that he had a hard time sleeping just thinking about all these folks that he was having to go collect signatures, 1,500 homes a day, going home to home to home to collect signatures when we've got this virus, and maybe that wasn't the wisest thing to do. Um, And what I'm hearing is the traditional Meet the Candidates events have been canceled. Everything's going online. uh, State convention, and it sounds like most of the county conventions are going to be some type of virtual thing where you, it's, it's everybody's remote. They're in their homes you're broadcasting something, you're voting remotely, all that ha- still has to be figured out in the next you know, four to six weeks. Um, and it will significantly change how candidates message to the delegates and how they get that through. I mean, there's one thing when you're in an auditorium with this rousing crowd cheering your speech to the silence of a sound studio with some, you know, speech you might give and you hope people vote accordingly. So I'm, you know, we're, we're a day into this, so I'll, I'll give you what I'm thinking about right now. And then it'll be interesting to see what really plays out. So some of the interesting dynamics are, I think that as John said, the Republicans have decided to keep the delegates from two years ago. And I think that favors more conservative candidates right now, because I think they have a sense of them. I think they've been messaging to them. I mean, I know that the Hughes campaign has been having conversations with these delegates. And I think these delegates are traditionally ones 
who haven't liked HB uh, or uh, Senate Bill 54. They haven't liked the change. They, I, I don't think they're a wave of change agents from that group. That's my perception of the Republican delegates. And I think that's what's an interesting dynamic. I think that those same candidates, so I put Birmingham and Hughes and um, Amy in this, Amy Winder Newton in this category, the ones who need to pop up their name ID, I think it's hard for them that these gatherings aren't taking place, the conventions aren't taking place, that they meet the candidates. I think those were good forums for them to talk to multiples. The other thing that's going to be really inside baseball, but now it's all about your infrastructure. Do you already have those lists teed up? Had you already got, do you already have good communication channels lined up already with the existing delegates? And what was caucus and convention, which was our Already really inside inside I think has now just become even more tactical well and this is one of the things I'm going to disagree slightly because two years ago was when Romney ran that's and right so and that you remember they moderate. booted Romney they did not the, the Republican delegates were not huge fans of well, Romney no, in he, that got cycle. he got 48 percent of the vote so it's almost a 50 50 dynamic and so they skewed more heavily to him that I would describe as a moderate versus Mike Kennedy but the other dynamic is we know a lot of folks were agitated with tax reform and the tax referendum and so those folks, I would assume, would be wanting to run as delegates, and they're largely and they're, not going to get that chance out, because yeah. maybe they're going to fill in where there's vacancies, but they are not going to be able to run on caucus night to be delegates to say, we're upset about the tax changes the legislature did, and we want to throw some folks out, and we want to force changes. So I'm sure we'll talk about this more because I think what you hit on, Heidi, at the beginning that's so important is this is a significant change in the Republican uh, gubernatorial race. Yeah, and it'll be interesting if we can get the infrastructure in place and how it'll work and how it plays out. So we're going to keep a close eye on that as we move forward. Uh, you may have heard there was a legislative session that ended last <laughs> night. It was a late <laughs> night for many, so thank you for Midnight. being Midnight. <laughs> yes, good times to be had for all. And uh, one of the biggest things, I don't know if there was one big story that came out of it for me at the legislature, but I know a lot of people were talking about um, last night the proposed ban on most abortions that passed its final vote. Uh, that measure now on the way to the governor's desk, um, although groups were calling on him to veto that. At this point, though, that bill wouldn't really do anything unless the Supreme Court were to take it up and Roe versus Wade were to be tossed out. At the same time, we had a second one um, that actually did not pass that I thought was interesting this week where we had all of the women senators um, that we had. They Republican walked out, and Democrat. Republican and Democrat, which was bipartisan. They said it wasn't planned, but they walked out on the abortion debate that was over mandatory ultrasounds. Were you surprised by this? I was kind of surprised when I saw that happen and the headline come out of the legislature just a couple nights ago. I was pleased at the clarity of it. I mean, we would really looked at a bill that had the state uh, recommending a non-necessary medical procedure against a citizen. And the fact that it took that amount of clarity, I mean, that's astonishing for me that particularly a set of conservative legislators would support pro-offer something in which a non-necessary medical procedure was going to be demanded of a citizen. And I was I was pleased to see, I, I believe it was spontaneous, with I, which I think just showed the depth of um, the feeling about how far this had gone into. I mean, I will say that those who are excited about this um, ultrasound bill also should probably take a look at Bernie Sanders because that level of sort of socialized programming by the state, I felt like completely overstepped its bounds and um, was quite threatening to in individual rights and liberties. Well, my understanding is it you know, just wasn't medically necessary. It was also quite invasive. I mean, I asked my wife about this, and she explained some of the details, but I'm going, something that invasive? 
state's going to require it. That just right. seemed outrageous. And so, right. so, you know, I applaud, you know, Senator Henderson and others that were, you know, too much, this, you know, too much, too, too far. Much too far. Yeah. And I think um, that was really what Henderson said is this invasive nature of the bill was what made her um, say that it just went too far. So, uh, there, I think when you're looking at Planned Parenthood, they were looking at it as they had one win, one loss, and I'm thinking the other side, probably looking at it maybe somewhat the same. I know that there were some people in there who were very emotional, saying that these ultrasounds, you know, maybe would have made them save a pregnancy. But ultimately, like you're saying, can the government require things that are not medically necessary? And that's what it came down to. Uh, the budget was a huge talker before the legislative session started. John. Um, we went into this where we knew that we weren't really going to accomplish anything uh, massive with tax cuts because that had been thrown aside. We're waiting for the next session. What came out of the budget that people should know about? Because it's a big amount of money the state spends. What do they need to know that you heard about, that you're thinking about as an auditor and saying, okay, this is what my neighbors should realize happened? Well, so, so one, they put together a budget. So a budget is done. It's a balanced budget, which is unlike Washington, D.C. So sexy. I love it. Yeah, there you go. One thing that uh, was major that came out was a compromise, a deal to deal with, deal with public ed funding. And the UEA, various education constituencies and the legislature and the governor came together on an agreement for that. Now, it's contingent on what the voters do in November, but there's a, actually this arrangement that's, that's out there. In place. That says we're going to guarantee a certain amount of growth for increases in student population increases in inflation, and setting aside some in a reserve or a rainy day fund when the economy has a downturn to deal with stability to education, public ed funding. So you've got that, which is a major thing. But I did flag for folks right now today, at least a couple of weeks ago, it felt a lot like 2008. Hey, the economy's booming. Everything's great. And in 2008, September, we were back cutting budgets because the economy fell apart between when the session ended and that point. And so I've cautioned them to say with this whole coronavirus and, and the likely economic downturn that's, that's taking place, um, be very cautious and don't overspend all that money and assume it's going to be there so if the, the legislature economy falls apart. So already has flagged that, right? We saw a rare event this week in which as we closed the legislature, the other thing that was very much out there is the fact that don't get too excited about your budgets because the likelihood of a special session and a likelihood of a reshuffle. Now, this was actually even before the additional set-aside of the coronavirus. Right. Uh, this was sort of, I think we're up to $24 million on a set-aside. This I was prior yes. This was prior to that. So we're looking at three, four days ago which, you know, in, in, in the lifetime ago the, now, the, right? The legislative clock. Uh, three or four days ago, already leadership was signaling and the governor's office was signaling that we're likely to hold a special session pretty soon and that they may go to the different department heads and say, I need a belt tightening from everybody because they're not sure about, I mean, John's right. They put together a, a, a balanced budget that was closed. I'm not, I'm not trying to question so. that, but we are not at a point which we are, I think, putting the budget to bed for this year, which is a little bit unusual, and citizens should watch out in the next several weeks to the disposition of whether we will bring back a special session and, and reshuffle the budget a little bit. About the education, I just want to say one thing that's interesting. So it looks like all sides came together. It looks like a bipartisan vote. You have UEA, the largest teachers union, buying in. I'm just going to say one of the things. It came together pretty fast. I think this issue had been thoroughly discussed for, oh, I don't know, 35 years. I mean, it's not like it's a new topic. But it does come, as John said, with a really important asterisk that I think is the responsibility of the citizens to not just go ahead and say, oh, 
all these, you know, logos agreed, so I'm not going to take into account. It's a major, major shift in how we've um, structured the education budget. It will require all of us to change the Constitution on Election Day in which we will no longer earmark um, our income tax solely for education. Now, what I find interesting about it is it, it indicates right now that they're only going to add two different categories. Um, another, some sufficient ag- categories for other children's issues and also some with disabilities. For me, the devil is still in the description of those additional activities that could be included in the uh the income tax. And so I'm still looking for the writing of that constitutional amendment to decide if I'm comfortable with the deal that's been made. And they're going to have to work hard on selling that long before the election because I think we all know that it's tough to understand if there's very little information there and you can't change it once it's actually on the ballot. So um, hopefully we'll have all that information clean and ready to go. So lots of questions there. Uh, One thing that I was excited about, I guess sometimes we have bills that personally um, affect us, but my dad's a type 1 diabetic. And over the years, I don't think there's been a ton of stress over him getting insulin, but in recent years, the price keeps going up and up and up. And in the 1920s, that's when they started using it. It's not like there's new research going on, but we're talking going from $20 to $250 a vial. Representative Norm Thursden uh, requiring with his bill that passed, health plans cover insulin with no deductible in the lowest copay tier, which means that it would be 100% covered. And if that plan uh, elects not to comply, the law would create a copay of $30 per month prescription which is a big deal. When I look at my dad, I think he's covered better right now, but maybe a year or two ago, he was paying $250 a vial, using about a vial a week, so $1,000 simply if you wanted to survive beyond eight hours. Uh, when you look at this bill, was this a good idea, or are we forcing businesses, which some people are upset about, like insurance companies, to do something that's sort of socialist? So I come from the hat that is, you know, public policy, but also a small business owner. And I think that this piece of legislation was forward thinking, bipartisan, and really smart. If you look at the needs and the um, the risk factors, as well as the entire health system and the relationship it has to insulin and diabetes. This was, I think, um, preemptive care. I think it was really smart. I think in the long run it saves money, and I think it is a really humane approach, um, and it also reflects the, the world in which we're living in. I, th- I thought it was a tremendous bill. Does this, uh, John, when you talk about conservatives, you never want to talk about telling a business what they can charge for their product. Is it okay for a legislature to do this when we're talking about a product where they're not trying to recoup expenses, they're just charging more simply because they can? Well, part of the dynamic here is, first of all, healthcare is broken. And so Very, to think yeah. it's a complete free market is is not the case. If yeah. it were a free market, then we'd likely have better situations. And so with the different you know, impairments in that market, Yes, you saw the problems with uh, insulin, and so the legislature felt like this is the best way to go about doing it. Clearly, I have some concerns that say whenever you do price controls, there's usually other ramifications, oftentimes unintended consequences that are negative. You know, if this were to result in less supply, that would clearly be a concern. And so we're going to have to watch to see how this shakes out to see if it does help those that need this you know, life-saving treatment or if it causes other ramifications that are problematic. But we've seen you know, innovative solutions here in Utah. Uh, Civica RX, um, uh, former state senator Dan Lillianquist is one of the um, smart guys behind this, is trying to say, okay, here's some of what's broken in prescription drugs. And so we are going to create a new market with a bunch of players to try and deal with driving down the cost here and get away from these monopoly folks that can jack the price up and actually say, how do we reduce the cost of 
of prescription drugs and meet the needs of patients. I'm hoping that this is maybe a domino effect and it affects other things for the better, not worse. I hope this doesn't jack up our insurance. I know that's been the complaint of some people online worried that everyone will pay for everyone else's insulin right now. So, And then the insulin companies will jack the price up even more. Yeah, so hopefully Which that, shows how broken the system is. Yes. Which is just sad. So, I mean, you can still make a lot of money on insulin with the fact that it was invented in the 1920s. Right. We don't really have to charge that much. You can still make lots of money, maybe have 10 vacation homes instead of like 20. Yeah. I don't know. But that's kind of bossy. All right, um, let's talk a little bit about the... How many vacation homes do you have? Well, I'm still working on having one. I'm trying to pay off the original house I have, so that is currently my vacation home. Uh, Inland Port, we have an expert in the house here. So Senator Luce Escamilla's bill she sponsored uh, will create community enhancement program to address impacts of development. It passed. You are an expert in the house. So it's been fairly quiet, I'd say, the last couple months on the Inland Port, at least for people who are not involved in it. What has changed? What will people see, Mara? So, look, we had two Inland Port bills passed this year. One was presented by a Republican. One was presented by a Democrat. So I think that showed, you know, the spirit in which people approached the port this year. Both of the bills were considered major compromises. Both the bills were very inclusive about how they got to the solutions. As you suggested, Senator Escamilla's bill really focuses on the communities that will have ports. And I think enhancement is a good word because if you look at some of the rural satellite areas that may be considered in in the upcoming years, and if you certainly look at the west side of Salt Lake, which has been sort of the epicenter of the discussion, this allows some study of what will... um, you know, with, with those communities being the center of these logistics hubs, what can we also do to enhance those? So whether that is in crosswalks or whether that is in tree plantings or whether, ho- however the city, I mean, or the community wants to come up with those solutions. So I think that was a very forward thinking. Um, I think it was a way to look at being in a community that also has those logistics. And then Francis Gibson obviously passed a major piece of legislation as well that tweaked some of the bigger issues that happened when, um, um, you know, that the port was originally established. It gave some additional seats at the table, particularly to Salt Lake City, the mayor's office. Um, it gave a balance more to the taxation, the tax increment. And it also included a major nod that I think supersedes any municipality, including Salt Lake City, actually. The inland port now has gone farther to express its desire to be uh, net neutral, to, dis- to express its desire to be um, forward thinking about the, envir- the environment and really looking at clean technology. And I will just say they put a marker down, uh, a bar for the inland port to live by again that most municipalities don't have in place with their development. So it's time now for the municipalities to catch up, I think, from an environmental point of view with the port. Which is good news, I hope. Yeah, I think that's great news. One of the interesting dynamics I hear is while the port was so, you know, negative in the Salt Lake City area, Mm -hmm. as I travel the state in rural Utah, folks are thrilled with this idea, especially about the regional... um, inland port hubs in possibly in their the communities. Hub spoke the hub and spoke or the hub and hub, depending how folks want to describe it. Yeah, they are. So many of them are just thrilled with the concept that in rural Utah, you might have a, a little mini hub in their community that's close to the freeway and everything else like that. And this can be part of helping boost their you know, economy. Now, some folks are also saying, well, gee, with the downturn of, of trade with China, is that going to be a negative and stuff? But I think in the long term, this you know, clearly there might be little short-term blips, but in the long term, we're still going to have a very integrated um, 
trade system. So a couple of things I think we need to think about when we look at because, you know, they haven't started planning yet. So as we start to participate in uh, the priorities of these ports, I think a couple of things are in play. And one is the logistics we're talking about are really supporting our own lifestyles. This is not sort of an esoteric concept. It's really about your Amazon order to some degree. So when when people say it's old thinking technology, it's actually this really is Mara driving the economy. Coherent. Still. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I shop shop. No, so it's really looking at our own behaviors. The other thing that's interesting as you look is uh, I think there's this impression that this comes with a lot of new build. I think in many instances, particularly in the rural parts of Utah, like let's take price or let's take some areas in cash, you're looking at infrastructure and um, particularly trains and cargo infrastructure that are decreasing because they're coal dependent. Now, if you switched there and still took this great infrastructure, I, I'm one that wants to jettison the coal part, but what if you replace that with grains heading to the middle, um, to middle America? So now you've revitalized this rural economy using the infrastructure that you've already had, and you've cleaned it up. So in, in all of these instances of creating these logistic systems, we shouldn't just automatically think it's new build. Sometimes it's a re. Well, Mara's absolutely right because these communities, they've got a rail line or two coming through. They've got an interstate highway that's right there close by. And so it's just a little bit of uh, enhancement. Enhancement. All right. Good information there. We're going to watch it as it goes forward. And hopefully when we start having public meetings again, we can all be nice and listen and <laughs> ask good questions. Hopefully. And not go pee-pee on the floor or do other <laughs> naughty things. Uh, porn labeling passed the Utah legislature, but uh, could face some First Amendment challenges was this a bill that uh, you felt was a good idea? Is it good for you, Tom? So, you know, porn has some serious ramifications, especially for our youth. And I think it's important the legislature is recognizing that. The challenge is how do you deal with this in a free speech environment? I mean, I dealt with an anti-porn bill back in, I think it was 2005. And then I watched because we tried to do a balancing test and, you know, to just get the right thing to try and help parents uh, so they could protect their kids and then we got in the bus of free speech, even though we tried to balance it so well. You know, we'll have to see what plays out here because it is very challenging. And this is where sometimes it's where the government almost needs to say, it's buyer beware, you're on your own, rather than a false sense that it might help. Hey, parents, it's the Wild West out there, and you got to watch out for your kids. Yeah. So it's my comments are under the auspices of effective public, uh, you, you know, a, a public legislation. So, you know, Let's let's all agree. Nobody thinks porn's good for kids. Nobody. I, I think too much pornography can certainly interfere with relationships. Um, you know, your work. It has a lot of problems when you overconsume anything. What we do know, and we look at, if we decide to look at data and science, is that for all of my psychologist friends out there, there they would know that the DSM five, which is the big old honky book that therapists used to diagnose and treat. It does not include porn. It does include other addictions. It includes, um, you know, it includes drugs. It, op it, it acknowledges dopamine's effect on gambling. It doesn't include pornography because pornography is really an avoidance behavior. It's, it's no different than overeating or playing too many video games. So, yes, you have a life balance problem. And, but, again, we're looking at a legislative solution that's not addressing the problem. And so I look at these bills, and while I don't want to be, like, 
the pro porn person, there are two things. One is it, it there's not a chance it violates the First Amendment. It does violate the First Amendment. And we've had a lot of um, jurisdiction. We've had a lot of court cases about the free speech and pornography. So one, certainly it'll be challenged in court. Now the state of Utah is going to pay for that kind of challenge, which I think is irresponsible. But two, it, it doesn't allow us to address the underlying conditions of our environment that says, why are we indulging in this avoidance behavior? And how do we get people to a place where whatever's going on in their life, whether it's that relationship or their self-view, we know pornography skews people's points of view about bodies and relationships. We know there's harmful effects. But we also know it's not diagnosed as an addiction, and we shouldn't treat it. We should use data to make really good decisions, and that's why I sort of am rather a little bit disdainful of what I see here at the end of the day are message bills that lack effect. And so money will be spent in the days to come. Uh, one thing that might help, uh, Wine of the Month Club gets a thumbs up. So um, you can start ordering your Wine of the Month if it ma makes your days a little easier, John. You ready to sign up for it? Yeah, probably <laughs> won't do that, but, you know, I've got my water here. <laughs> okay, so just to finish a really depressing week for me, I'm going to talk about... Speaking of avoidance, no. Wine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I got all excited about... I'm not going to lie, I got excited about Wine of the Month, you know. NPR has their little wine, so I call my local lobbyist... NPR, Wall DM, Street Journal also. DM, yeah, DABC expert and said to him, I, I said, break this down for me. And he said, you're not going to like this. So here apparently are the details of the bill. Ooh, okay. What it really does for us, for whoever us are, is that you've increased the amount of liquor you can bring in from wherever you are, whether that's national or international, whether you're a mesquite person you're an or importer, not. Exporter. You can you can move to now a case of liquor that you can bring in for personal consumption. I guess what has happened though with the wine of the month happens is it really essentially DABC is now giving you a broader. Um, Selection. Selection. And they've always had this. So it really isn't new. You still have to go to DABC. You still have to special order. You actually can't pick a wine of the month club like you're thinking in your heads, like you've seen in the advertisements. That's still all illegal. And you're still subject to the 87% markup Some, that the great state like of that. Utah has implied on the free market system that is alcohol. And so you're still subject to that incredible markup by the state. So really, it's like it's it's a little bit of a... It's a little bit of a trick for us. But, hey, now you can buy a case from Mesquite, even though you're probably buying three anyway and didn't care. But now you can legally, legally buy Legally bring it across case. the border. All right, good and, information. And, and, and while I don't drink, this is one of those things from my perspective as the state. We're overreaching in many of those aspects when it comes to alcohol policy. You know, I grew up in a state where they sold wine in the grocery store, and I still never drank as a result of that. But, you know. I'm I'm not sure what the hank is and why we're so concerned. I know because we make a chunk of change off of it, don't you think? But you can still apply a tax regardless. Yeah, I mean, I I love the free market. You know, as a, as a, right. someone left of center, yeah, I I'm I, just I say I say let the free market run. I can say we can regulate <laughs> and we can tax without us being the purveyor of it. Absolutely, you so and you I guys agree. Can agree that we should be able to go to Target and <laughs> see a wine aisle with all the moms Since who need to relax. We're just looking for There's toilet no paper. toilet paper. Oh we need wine. There's mm -hmm. no toilet paper and there may no uh, be no wine now either. I saw some pictures at the state liquor store today too. So people are ready for their quarantine with their Jose Cuervo or like whatever your like spice of the Just as long as it's not Corona beer, right? Yes, no Corona beer. 38% of Americans won't buy Corona That's beer right. for fear of I'm no fool. 
Is that a real thing? <laughs> yes. It was a headline I, I saw. I saw the headline as well that said people were staying away from Corona beer. makes me wonder about... Uh, Our education. And yeah, something. Oh, yeah. my gosh. All right. We'll make sure we do a news story about that today <laughs> and make sure the distinction is made out there that uh, not even looking at beer will give it to you. All right. Well, this is good information. I hope we're back here again next week, healthy and happy and ready to do this. We're not socially spacing six feet. I don't know. Is this three feet? It is. We'll have to sterilize the microphone. We're about, we're about five feet. Yeah. <laughs> So social distancing. Yes, but thank you so much for being here. Um, if you do have to be home, be responsible, be happy, don't be mean to each other. And listen. And, and get listen. out and about. Yeah, go exercise. I think the sun. zoo is staying open with their public areas, not their inside spaces, but their outside spaces. Just like, don't touch the animals. Just don't, ch- don't touch <laughs> anything, you know. Just stay safe, but get out there. Yeah, live your life. All right, YOLO. Who was it that gave you the good advice? Charles Barkley, Charles is Barkley who's guiding me this week. Live like Charles Barkley. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for another week of Take Two.